And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, secular scholars, uh, at least some, have uh, claimed what they see are clearly parallels between uh, Juan Diego's story of Our Lady of Guadalupe and, in fact, a collection of uh, song poems, uh, which it's part of, a, again, a collection, origin of the songs in particular. And this has caused some dismay among believers who have noticed these parallels. My guests, though, are two people who were not afraid to go and check this thing out, to take a look at all the facts, the possible interpretations. Uh, we know the way the story goes. San Juan Diego, St. Juan Diego, uh, ascended Tepeyac Hill. Uh, before his famous encounter with the Blessed Mother, he was uh, surrounded by beautiful music, wondrous sights. He asks himself is, if he's found the place his ancestors spoke of, the flower world paradise and the land of heaven. Um, what was he referring to, and how does that form perhaps the backdrop of uh, the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe? Joseph Julian Gonzalez is the co-author of Guadalupe and the Flower World Prophecy, How God Prepared the Americas for Conversion Before the Lady Appeared. He's a, a well-known and respected composer whose music has been performed at Carnegie Hall, the Sydney Opera House, Walt Disney Concert Hall, the Vatican, and other prestigious venues. His composing credits include Academy Award-nominated feature documentary Colors Straight Up, the Emmy Award-winning Made in L.A., and the Peabody Award-winning uh, six-part miniseries Latino Americans. He's conducted the Bulgarian National Radio Symphony Orchestra for his score for the Imagine Award-winning PBS landmark documentary called Children of Giant. And he's also co-composed the score to Quentin Tarantino's Curdled with rock and roll legend Slash. Guns and Roses. Uh, his wife, Monique Gonzalez, is uh, the co-author of Guadalupe and the Flower World Prophecy, How God Prepared the Americas for Conversion Before the Lady Appeared. She has studied classical voice with various notable vocal instructors, has been a professional cantor at several prominent churches in L.A., New York City, and here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where Monique and I met. She's produced uh, internationally recorded full orchestral scores, including the award-winning PBS documentary Children of Giant, and was a singer on the Peabody Award-winning miniseries Latino Americans. She has co-authored the libretto for the three-part opera, uh, which is translated Dreams of Bejar. Well, Joseph, good to make your acquaintance, and Monique, good to talk with you again. Hello. Great to talk Hello. to you again. Hello. Thank you. Thanks now, for having us. Well, thank you. This is a tremendous amount of work. And uh, when you showed me uh, the manuscript, I just I said, "Wow! I, I, this you 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 had to turn over a lot of rocks <laughs> and touch a lot of bases uh, to, to get this done." And it's it's quite remarkable. But let's let's talk about the problem to which this book is the solution. Joseph, okay. you want to start? Yes, please. Thank you. Yeah, the, the, the problem is, and perhaps this may surprise a lot of your Catholic listeners, but there's a genre of what they call Aztec flower song poems uh, that sound strikingly like the Guadalupe narrative. The, the, the metaphor actually is that of a singer who's looking for flowers so he can gather them in his tilma, 
and he could present them to the lords and princes. And um, there's a, there's much more to the story, and we can get into that. But the problem that 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 is in the secular world is that they're saying, well, obviously the similarities are so close to the Guadalupe narrative. This must be the source for a fabricated Guadalupe narrative. In other words, this is what the Spanish used, perhaps one of the many tools that the Spanish used in order to dupe the indigenous people into converting into Catholicism. Well, as you said, you know, we had to turn over so many rocks, we had to read so many books. It was like this kind of like a a hill of knowledge that we had to kind of go over into, into finally being able to see a clear picture of history and what these poems actually are, which we say is actually evangelical preparation. Yeah. So, uh, Monique, if you'd like to add something to that. Um, not necessarily. I think maybe just the general idea is that, um, because in the secular realm they're very open and discussing a lot of this, but we just haven't seen anything on the Catholic side. Right. So after quite a few years of researching it hoping we would see somebody writing a book on it, we just kind of came to the conclusion that this, what we call our wonderful obsession, had to be put down in our own words, and, and so it's being born today, as it, as it is. So. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to point out that uh, we, we believe that uh, God uh, prepared uh, the Hebrew people for the coming of Messiah. There's antecedents, historical antecedents, mm-hmm. And it's it's not uncommon in Catholic understanding of at least Western civilization um, that uh, even the classic Greek philosophers may have prepared the soil uh, for the coming of the gospel to the Gentiles. So, uh, is, is are you proposing then that this collection of songs um, is really the way the Holy Spirit uh, implanted these concepts? in Mesoamerica prior to Our Lady's appearance. Yes, absolutely we're doing that. In fact, you can draw so many parallels between the Greek philosophers, the Greek ideas of values and morality, such as Justin Martyr, who was actually converted because of the this strong philosophical foundation that had been implanted before Jesus came and the Gospel message arrived. We're saying that there was such a thing as Mesoamerican wise men or philosophers who would have been called Nahua. That's, that's kind of the collected name of the people of Mesoamerica during the time of the conquest. That there was such a thing called Nahua philosophy, and it was actually through the flower song poems that they expressed this philosophy. And what it really comes down to is, of course, there's pantheism, polytheism, human sacrifice, but there was also what undergirded this was a belief in tr- in the transcendence, uh, very much like Plato, for example, idea that in a heaven, in another realm, there exists the perfect forms. Well, it's so similar that through earthly beauty, the Nawa thought about divine beauty. And it was really, as we're making the case, with certain things such as the flowers, the por- four-petaled flower, a belief in the flower of paradise, that this transcendental aspect, this search for beauty, truth, and goodness existed, and excuse me, and that it and it was through the tran- transcendentals that God was able to kind of like sneak in yeah. and was able mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to do something uh, for the people of Mesoamerica to convert them. Yeah. Uh, so, 
this preparation then uh, leads that. Uh, how, I guess I'm wondering how um, how rich was the meditation on the flower world paradise? I mean, is that is that the the pre Guadalupe concept of heaven? Sure. Well, what we found was kind of interesting is there's this field of study called flower world studies. And in the process of archaeologists and linguists and anthropologists trying to understand the belief systems here in America, they discovered that this particular belief system in a solar floral paradisal realm was shared in common by uh, millions of people covering a huge geographical region and they discovered it they could hard date it they could take it as far back as the inception of the Olmec society which is about 1500 bc wow. and you start seeing all yeah all these characteristics that are very specific to this flower world paradise whether it be uh, shining iridescence coming through flowers and rocks and gemstones and the birds and the butterflies all of these characteristics are found in common in the song poetry, which is how they first learned about it. And then they started finding it in, in temples, archaeological ruins, hmm. in murals. You start seeing four-petaled flowers. You start seeing them um, as indicators of, of how they believe the soul would travel into this flower paradise. Or, and, and you start learning more and more about what they perceive uh, a soul would need to go through in order to obtain that flower world paradise. If Joseph would like to jump in and kind of talk more about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll just kind of quickly sum it up. And, and the, the reason why this connects to the Guadalupe story is because, as you mentioned, Juan Diego actually names this place in his Nahuatl language, in Xochitlalpan, in Tonacatlalpan, which is the exact same place that these anthropologists and linguists and uh, archaeologists are referring to. Mm -hmm. So now it kind of sets context as to why Juan Diego said, "Could the flower world paradise, could this be the place our ancient ancestors spoke of? Yeah. So he, he leads us on this quest, and of course there's more to it, because the, the, the flowers end up becoming a metaphor for truth, and of course Juan Diego finds the flowers at the end of the, um, at the, end of the story. So there's so many connections here, and we go through that in our book. Yeah, uh, it's really remarkable. Tell us again about the, the use of the flower uh, in the role the Tilma plays in all of the ancient stories. Well, the ancient man had this concept of a four-directional, a four-petaled flower, which really represented the known universe, north, south, east, and west. Okay. What, em what emanates from the center point of that is a way in which to reach heavenly beauty, heavenly truth, it, that is found in the flower paradise. So it's, the flower is a symbol for the connection between heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, Juan Diego, as a baptized Christian, finds the truth of the university as he gathers, gathers it in his tilma, uh, mimicking that gesture of the ancient singer who was looking for flowers. But, of course, on the tilma, there is actually a four-petaled flower over the womb of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yeah. And what it's signifying is that it's a two-dimensional image, but if you try to see it as a three-dimensional image, you could see that the center point is like a wormhole leading us to eternity, to leading us to ultimate truth and beauty, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. 
Wow. It, it's, remar- it's a remarkable story, and it's a remarkable look at this uh, preparation uh, for the gospel uh, that we're seeing in Mesoamerica. Again, I want to, we're going to come back and continue the conversation, but I want to, again, recommend Guadalupe and the Flower World Prophecy, how God prepared the Americas for conversion before Our Lady appeared. And we're going to continue with uh, Joseph uh, and Monique Gonzalez on the other side of this break. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Continuing conversation with Joseph and Monique Gonzalez. They are the co-authors of Guadalupe and the Flower World Prophecy, How God Prepared the Americas for Conversion Before the Lady Appeared. C.S. Lewis has an essay called The Myth Become Fact. It's a concept which J.R.R. Tolkien shared with him and became part of Lewis's thinking. And it's the idea that uh, in European legends and uh, myths uh, of various peoples, you have this myth of the dying and rising God, uh, which actually became historic fact in the uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do we have something similar here, that the ancient um, uh, Mesoamerican philosophers, uh, thinkers, wise men, talking about... um, again, the flower world paradise, that this story that they refer to actually becomes historical fact in the life of Juan Diego. Yes, we're absolutely making that claim. Yeah, um, We were so surprised when we were doing our research that, um, you know, if you put the two stories together of a singer who's looking for flowers, trying to get into the flower world paradise, but cannot go there because he is afflicted and with sin, and only the God of far and near can make one worthy to enter the flower paradise. We find something of a part one of a story, mm-hmm. uh, that of a paradise lost, yes. which is very typical to pagan uh, cultures around the world. But in part two, we, of course we're in, the, we're in the world of legend, we're in the world of myth, but these are important stories to pagan cultures or any cultures, uh, but of course, with in the story of Juan Diego, it it actually happened. We have it happened in four days, December ninth to December twelfth, fifteen thirty one. There was a real Juan Diego. Um, the millions of conversions that followed really did happen. So we're making the case that God was making a case for belief that something that was implanted into the culture eventually turned into reality. Mm-hmm. Juan Diego steps into the historical timeline and he completes the story, whereas we find we have a failed hero, we now have a redeeming hero, the one that actually completed the quest, and that was to find the flowers. Yes. He becomes an archetypical hero at that point. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, this is remarkable. This also explains the the remarkable rate of conversion, too, doesn't it? I mean, there's now anthropological and sociological antecedents uh, to this massive conversion that takes place. Monique? Yes. 
Yes. Actually, um, one of the things that we definitely delve into a lot in Guadalupe and the Firewall Prophecy is going through many of the, the accounts that are detailing the numbers, the sheer numbers coming were absolutely staggering. Um, and there's so many accounts of people coming from hundreds of miles away that the Spanish could not account for the numbers that were coming in as <laughs> many of the people that were traveling in had not encountered the Spanish before. So if you take that into consideration for traveling 70 miles, 120 miles, yeah. uh, 250 miles in some cases, where they're coming out from three, um, not only from that distance, but to the closest monastery, um, oftentimes that was quite far away from Mexico City, we need another way to account for how they were getting inspired to move towards baptism yeah. and, and you know what would do that would be this type of a story that was so ingrained in their culture that when you see the fulfillment of it um, after so so long craving to get to the flower world paradise and then discovering that there was an actual mechanism for them to get there that they didn't have to sac- sacrifice themselves in a bloody way the way they were being told and it kind of changes our perspective of what happened yeah yeah uh, now it, it, the book is published is today the actual publication date yes it is november okay. 21st all right <laughs> well that's very nice the presentation of our lady um yes, yes. so it's uh, it, has it reached the bookshelves yet so can people order it oh yes it's uh it could be it could be ordered through sophia com. it could be ordered there or of course it could be ordered on Amazon, yeah. or Barnes & Noble, and any other bookseller, okay. as of today. Yeah, and we'll certainly have it in our uh, bookstore as well. Uh, so this is, I'm, I'm anxious to see uh, the response. Uh, do you think that uh, you're going to engage, and if, uh, is this going, you're going to be presenting this at any uh, academic seminars uh, where secular scholars will have to engage you in this? You know, I... I hope so. Um, I mean, I think that you can see, you know, we have an extensive bibliography, yeah. and not mm-hmm. many of them are actually devotional Guadalupe books. <laughs> they are pretty hardcore anthropology, archaeology, linguistic books, um, but they all seem to point in one direction. And, you know, in, in the course of our research, we went to many of these Mesoamerican conferences. We met these scholars. Mm-hmm. I would hope that they would want to engage. I, I think that we have something here, and we try to prove it not only on a devotional level, but also on an academic scholarly level, too. Yeah. yeah. No, it's an incredibly thorough uh, bibliography. It's um, remarkable, uh, all the work that we've done. How, tell me, when, when, did this, when did this bee get in your bonnet first? What, <laughs> well, how many years ago? You want to explain money? Yes, it started about 14 years ago for the both of us, but prior to that, Joseph initially stumbled upon it because he was writing a concert mass where he was integrating uh, Aztec song poems with the Roman Catholic high mass. And in the process of doing that, he discovered this ancient song poem that's echoed in other song poems talking about the singer uh, wanting to go up to the top of a hill to gather flowers in his, in his choma to share with the lords and princes. So when he first heard about it, he saw the secular perspective on it and realized that they were saying it's a basically fabricated Guadalupe narrative. He yeah. put it on the shelf, 
it hurt his faith. Sure. I met him years later, and when um, it, the concert master had to go back to Carnegie Hall, he wanted to add more music to it, so he needed more song poems. He hands me the book. I read it. I'm shocked. And then at that point in time, I turn to him and say, well, what do you know about this? And he started pointing out all the secular, you know, uh, responses to it and from that point on we just kind of put our heads together and said you know let's get to the bottom of this yeah. let's find out why um, we ha- we're not hearing about it on the Catholic side and, and why the secular scholars are saying what they did and so we call it our wonderful obsession it just turned into this crazy thing where we just started reading everything we could find and the more we read the more we realized there might be something much larger occurring than we initially perceived you know and and that was pretty eye opening for us, and really strengthened our faith. Yeah, no, it's I can see, uh, you know, how this would grow into an obsession, and um, yeah. I, I'm I'm anxious to see it get in circulation, and have people respond to it. It's I think it's your presentation is compelling, to the degree I'm not an expert in the in the field, but I mean on the face of it, uh, you've done a spectacular job. Um, have you gotten, I'm just curious, uh, where do you, with with a, a book like this, um, how do you get it into the bloodstream, you might say, of the devotional world? Uh, again, mm-hmm. it's not a devotional book in the tr- traditional sense at all. It's a very intellectually demanding book. But still, it seems to me uh, people should have it... Uh, at where they have shrines, where they have special uh, uh, mm-hmm. presentations of Our Lady Guadalupe, this should become standard reading. It would seem to me. Well, you know, we we debated that. You know, at at one point, this was a nine hundred page book, <laughs> and we got it. <laughs> and we said, no, that's that's a little bit too much. So now it's you know under three hundred. But we debated because we we thought well we could water down this information. Um, or we could just present it and, and, and actually have people learn about Mesoamerica, because unfortunately a lot of people don't know about the Olmecs or the Mayan right. or the Nahua, and mm-hmm. there was just so much context that we had to give that we thought, well, we, we just, it, it, hopefully people will want to know about this if they have a devotion in Guadalupe, because I will tell you, as, as you've been saying, you know, um, once you see the entire big picture over a 3,000-year period, you just are in awe. Yeah. You were just saying, wow, look what God did, how yeah. he prepared yeah. the Mesoamerican people with every single detail. I, we hope that when people at least get to Chapter 7, <laughs> which is the Guadalupe event, that all these little things that we've been laying out in the previous chapters, which sometimes seem a little tedious, how they all come together and just make this compelling case for belief. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be doing interviews and hopefully uh, doing lectures, and we'd li- we, we think, as you think, that it should be part of the dialogue, yeah. it should be part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it just adds another layer to the knowledge a- out there about Guadalupe. Yeah, no, I, I, I really do hope uh, we can do something to help uh, make this a standard understanding of the mm-hmm. phenomenon of Our Lady of Guadalupe and uh, the experience of Juan Diego. Joseph, I'm interested in knowing, when you first came across this, it was troubling uh, to you, because uh, you just had, you know, the secular presentation of it. When, what was it that 
kind of flipped the light on or you know enabled you to say wait a minute uh there's another way of looking at this phenomenon well you know as uh, this would have been back in the early 1990s when i first got a hold of this book um songs of the aztecs by john beerhorst that had the troubling scholastic a scholarly line that was saying that it was all fabricated. Yeah. It was force materials were fabricated. And and it really hurt my faith. And I mean, I'm Mexican-American. My, my grandma's name is Guadalupe. <laughs> I went to our native Guadalupe elementary school. And it was very troubling. I mean, I thought, wow, this is the smoking gun. This is the way they did it. Right. That, I actually thought that for so many years. And then, of course, uh, I met uh, Monique, who became my future wife in 2009, and after so many years and so many books, we just said, you know, there's got to be an alternative way of looking at this. The, the, scholar, the scholarly way of looking at this is actually too simple. It's right. actually very easy to dismantle their arguments. That's right. Very, um, very easy to do. And we thought, wait a minute, uh, this must be preparation. This must have been a way that God was preparing the people of Mesoamerica. So that was part of it. If you want to add to that, Monique, from your perspective. Um, I think it was just in similarity, similarity to what you're saying, just this idea. And it, and it comes back to sort of my own faith life and this understanding that God can handle a person throwing the kitchen sink at, at him, if you will. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can ask all the questions. He is a rational God. It's not just about sentiment, right. but also your mind. It, 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 it's engaging the entirety of your person. So if that's true, then why can it not be true in this particular instance? So as time went on and we researched it more, um, just kind of realizing that um, that is indeed what he was doing. And, and it, you could look at it as he's making the case for belief because that's, you know, circling back to what you said at the beginning of the interview. You know, God doesn't just leave us out in the wild to just assume things without understanding why things are true. Yeah. He wants us to, to step into it. And in this particular case, he gave a lot of material for the people of Mesoamerica to hang on to him and, yeah. and to trust in him. Well, uh, you've done great work. Uh, I think you've made a great contribution. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what the Lord's going to do in the future. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate God that. Bless God bless you. you.